0: Welcome to Season 2 of Getting Closure, a podcast produced by the Landform Design Institute to explore the principles and people behind responsible mine closure and reclamation. Hi, I'm Michael Kane. We're going to begin this season with someone who has been a huge part of the mine closure business since before most of us even knew it was something we could specialize in. Dr. Andy Robertson. Andy is the R in SRK Consulting the first consulting firm in Africa to specialize in mining geotechniques, and this was back in the early 1970s. Eight years later, he assembled the first database for ore deposit modeling and open pit mine software that ran on personal computers. It was called Geocom at the time, although probably today you'd recognize it as Geovia. A few years later, he created InfoMine to help spread mining information through what was then a very early version of the Internet. And since 1994, Andy's run Robertson Geo Consultants, and they specialize in tailings and waste rock stability and geochemistry. No matter where you go in this business, our mining industry, you will encounter and run into Andy's legacy. I know that he has very positively influence my professional career. So I'm looking forward to the discussion, and I'm sure you enjoy our Getting Closure episode with Andy. Hi, Andy. How are you doing?
1: Wonderful to see you here, Mike. It's yeah. been some time since we've got together. Yeah. There's a period of getting together that lasted, what, 20-odd years? Yes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And... Um, uh, an absolute pleasure to, to be with you. Uh, I was so happy to see you today. Um, my my family, both my dad and my brother, have a connection to you, and as do I. And um, you've been one of those people who have influenced my career quite a bit, despite probably you not knowing it. And uh, so I, I really appreciate your time here.
1: Well, you know, you asked later about legacy, and you're a legacy of mine. Mm-hmm. To what extent of your legacy, I'm, 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 an influencer. I don't know, but it's yeah. wonderful to see where you've got.
0: Well, I appreciate so that, Andy. Good. Very kind of you. Yeah. yeah. So, um, Andy, maybe I'll we'll start with where. Uh, how did you come to Canada? Uh, where where were you? Where were you from originally?
1: Uh, I was. I was. Well, I was born in South Africa. Uh, was a Scottish heritage going back to the 1820s. Yes. With French Huguenot and Dutch as part of that background, but Scottish is embodied by name, Andrew McGregor Robertson. And at the age of nine, my family moved from South Africa to what was then Northern Rhodesia, a British colony. Yeah. And um, now uh, the country of Zambia. There I grew up in a small town, went to a, a relatively small school. At high school, we were perhaps 300 or 350 by the yeah. time I graduated. But I grew up, oh, I was trained under the British system, yeah. the Cambridge system. And uh, that prepared me for university. So I went down to uh, Johannesburg uh, in South Africa to the University of Little waters where I spent the next uh, five years being a good student and a a good student, but a poor (laughs) study. And my definition of that is, make certain you take part in all the activities, including the social ones, and those that are now so maligned about drinking enough beer. (laughs) So uh, it took me five years to complete a four year degree, but that stood me in good stead because that allowed me to go on to my, uh, my master's and PhD and during the period of my uh, preparation for my master's thesis, I worked on a very specific project for the professor under which I was studying, Professor uh, Jerry Jennings. And we had the um, bus of um, establishing the stability of an open pit. It was the original De Beers mine, in oh, wow. Kimberley, along which a railway line ran, which was the main national railway line between Johannesburg and Cape Town. And so we had a, a lot of opportunity, yeah. money and resources to be able to to study that. In the team was a chap by the name of Doug Pateau, who had newly got off the boat. Yeah. a Canadian from Vancouver was just his BSC in geology at that stage. And the next 10 or so years, the two of us uh, worked on our PhD theses, both of us working independently as well yeah. you know, for our living. And um, that bond developed, as you know, Pateau and Doug Associ- Pateau became, came back to Canada. Yeah. formed Pateau and Associates, Pateau and Associates are still going. So that formed the bond. I was a, one of the founders of Stephen Robertson and Kirsten, now SRK Consulting. He invited us to uh, uh, come out and be part in some sort of way. So we actually came across, I came across to do that for a period we owned part of Pateau Associates as SRK. And it was a rather a brief period because Doug... Had a very definite way of how he wanted to grow and run his company. Yes. So we decided to stay friends but part businesses rather than maintain businesses, one business, and become enemies. <laughs> so I stepped across and we formed the first branch of Stephen Robertson and Kirsten, or now SRK, right. here in Vancouver. That was in 1977,
0: right? That is, um, I had, I didn't know that you were uh, the connection of you with and uh, Doug Patel. That's very yeah. interesting. Very cool. He's a wonderful character. Yeah, and I like the the aspect of uh, of the more important thing of maintaining the friendship as opposed to having an argument about a business. That that's uh, well, an example of the uh, of clear thinking, right? And maybe I would ask you is that through the years, because a lot of us you know, consulting is is competitive, right? But I find that the collaboration is where the fun and 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 the good things happen. And maybe there might be crossover in knowledge or expertise, but that crossover allows you for that interdisciplinary integration so that you're almost peer reviewing each other of your stuff. And you can do that because you have the good friendship and you you know that it's done in for the good of the project, as opposed to being competitive.
1: Doug and I were colleagues as students, Yeah. Right? Yeah. Working to a, to, towards getting a PhD. A lot of my work was embodied in his thesis, and a lot of his work was embodied in my thesis as we went through and developed that. So that part there was no problem with, right? And the ability to, to check each other, to, to look at stuff is tremendous, right? Um, and I think that maintains throughout as you go forward in, forward in life. Each new person you meet and with whom you share is another another tool in your toolbox yes. that you have. Yeah. And I think that creates the strength of what you have at the end of your lifetime. Yeah. yeah. And the, the, of what you've built up. The splitting with Doug was really on how you run a business. Right. Right. And it was in the. Late seventies, early eighties, and you remember the the late seventies weren't all that good coming yeah. out of out of seventy four and, and yeah that period. So my mandate was really not to do rock mechanics. He was doing the rock mechanics, yeah, which we both got our our PhDs in. But for me to bring into his practice soil mechanics, right, tailings right? dam design, those sort of things. So that actually switched a lot of my area of work and study into tailings. Right. right. Now I've been involved significantly in tailings in South Africa, but this was sort of a real step out to come in. And it was very hard to break in to the local market because the local market is somewhat old boy control. Yes. Right. Yeah. The entrenched relationships, What I found, it was easier to break into markets outside of Canada, like the United States, South America, and so on, than to actually break into the Canadian market. (laughs) So I very rapidly developed an international practice. Right. And anyway, that was the, the change that happened on coming here period with Patera Associates and the start of this. OK. Yeah.
0: So would you consider like like it feels like you you saw a need in the industry for a higher level of of acumen and application of, of your of the knowledge. Um, and then you sort of went out and, and found the market and developed the market. Is that part of and then. Uh, again, you was SRK, and and then you um, went on to start Robertson Geo Consultants, and I know you have a, a, num- a number of other different ventures. you did. Would you – like we hear a lot about young people being entrepreneurs and whatnot. Like, yeah. Would you consider yourself an entrepreneur, or is it you're just following your effort and your passion and, and where you want it to go?
1: Well, I think there's different types of entrepreneurs. Uh, there are those that have an idea – and seek to flesh and build it out into something big. Yeah. Tesla being the top of the pile at the moment, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, then there are those that find solutions to problems, right? And in finding solutions to problems, they develop things which they would like to share. Yes. Right? And there are means of sharing it. I'm more of that second type, right? So a lot of what I did was not me developing an idea and finding a market. The market had a need because there wasn't a solution. Yes. And I was offered the opportunity of finding the solution. Having found the solution, there was the gratification of being able to spread it. Right. So I think the passing on of knowledge, you know, the the early uh, work I did, for example, in acid mine drainage, which is way out of the field of a general civil engineer, was to solve a problem, right? It's a problem that you're aware of that, past at Island Copper, but Aero, and uh, that came about because in the late 70s and early 80s, the radionuclides associated with uranium mining yes. suddenly became a very big concern. That was just ahead of really the significant uh, uranium mining in Canada. Oh yes, yeah yeah, yeah Key- that's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah one of my first jobs here was Key Lake and Key Lake table when I came in and then on to other things right. Um, but the the problem that was identified, and that's the migration of deleterious substances in solution that was identified in the nuclear concerns, or rather, as a result of the radioactive concerns, right. became a uh, and the tools that were developed in order to predict the plumes and do all of those things became the basis on which they said, "Hey, we see a whole lot of other contaminants, and that's where the acid mine drainage issue started becoming big." Is there the tools and so on in order to predict the plumes? They didn't have the tools to predict the source. Very interesting, I, yeah. Having said that, there was, just to be fair, in the eastern United States, acid mine drainage in the coal mines had been a problem since the 1930s. But nobody bent and put their mind to the solutions for you. hard rock mines. It wasn't recognized in rock, hard rock mines. So the transition from trying to address the radionuclide problem in uranium tailings there became... A uh, base on which you could build for acid mine drainage. The only piece missing is what is the source? How do yes. you how, how do you generate the stuff in the first place? Well, I, I still firmly maintain it takes six weeks to become a specialist. All you have to do is read a lot. In six weeks, you can read enough to become an expert in any subject of a narrow enough. Science. Yes. Right. Yeah. So, and to be an expert, you only had to be ahead of the guy that's just behind you. You don't have to be leaps and bounds. And from out of town, that helps to be an expert. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, that allowed one to develop a whole new interest in the geochemical aspects of tailings, dams, soil, soil's behavior. And their effects on the environment and so on. So integrated into that, right? At in the late 70s, early 80s, was their whole environmental protection. Right? That's right. why you did it. Otherwise, you wouldn't. So you yeah. you keep spending all this other effort. So really, that was the start, I believe, of the really significant level.
0: Great. Yeah. So just to continue on that a moment, and you know, back early in the day, it was. You know, we called it, or reference it as acid mine drainage. Today, it's uh, it's morphed over into the metal leaching and acid drainage. So essentially. Solutes of concern, whether they're sulfate or neutral drainage or, or acidic drainage and, and whatnot. And then in, in Australia and Oceania, they reference it as acid and or for drainage. So back to AMD again. But, so it can cause confusion as we go to different parts of the world. But you're basically talking about the same
1: thing, right? It's any solute that is deleterious to the environment that can become mobile as a result of what geochemistry happens when you expose it. During mining. Yeah. Okay. When, when you bring it from where it's unprotected from oxygen and other uh, elements to where it is attacked by those or is subject to chemical reactions
0: by those. Yeah. Well, I'm uh, just as a reminder, we're going to take a break here and we'll uh, allow the uh, Landform Design Institute to uh, speak about the November uh, 2022 short course that we're holding in Calgary. And then we'll be back uh, uh, right after that.
2: The Landform Design Short Course is back. It will be held November 2nd to 4th in Calgary, Alberta. You can still sign up by visiting the landformdesign.com website. The course consists of lectures and exercises that provide practical how-to advice on designing, building, reclaiming, and monitoring mining landforms and landscapes that meet declared land use goals and design objectives. Case histories will be presented and analyzed to provide real-world examples that use a wide range of resource types and climate settings. Session leaders will include LDI board members, Gord McKenna, Mike O'Kane, and Lois Boxell, along with technical advisory panel members, Justin Straker and Jerry Vandenberg, among others. Landform design is an emerging process used to reconstruct mine lands in a more responsible and sustainable manner. It is both a process and a set of tools that allow industry, regulators, and communities to work together to minimize residual risks, optimize opportunities, and reduce the costs required to achieve progressively reclaimed landscapes with confidence and pride. To register for the course, head over to landformdesign.com. And now, back to Mike and Andy.
0: All right, welcome back to the podcast with uh, Dr. Robertson. Uh, Again, thank you, Andy, for being with us. Uh, Great conversation so far. Um, maybe as we were talking about uh, AMD and metal leaching and ARD, I, I wanted to uh, share with you a story of the first time I'd ever heard of acid rock drainage. Um, it was as I was a, a summer student, and you were the uh, uh, one of the lead uh, consultants with SRK, and I think it was uh, Woodward Clyde out of Colorado on that south wall pushback right. at Island Copper. In the powerful, um, yeah. yeah. And uh, to be able to expand and, and get out a bit more copper with the Rupert Inlet there. And of course, between there and the inlet um, was the beach dump, right? With all the, the mine rock there. I, as a haul truck driver and the summer student, I remember uh, that's uh, being told, oh, that one goes to the beach. And I had no idea what it was and why, but it was the beach or it was the, the, the nag pile or it was the till pile. And at that time, I had no idea what all those things were. It was just, I was just driving a haul truck. And, and uh, quite frankly, I was like, I'm so fortunate to making so much money as a haul truck. I was like the, the richest undergraduate student, I always thought. Uh, but uh, it was a great upgrade. But my, my, uh, my older brother, Kevin, worked at the site. So for my fourth year project, I said, I'll just use that data. It'll be easy. And But I went back to my, uh, my, my professor, uh, Dr. Lee Barber, who eventually did my thesis under, and he goes, well, you should go back and ask your brother if they have an, an ARD problem at all. And of course, I went back there and, and I said, have you ever heard of ARD? And he goes, oh, yeah. He goes, in fact, I'm uh, there's a fellow here who uh, who's handling that pushback and he does all the rock mechanics and SRK is working on the on the ARD stuff. And he uh, I was uh, whenever he comes to tour site, my boss always tells me, don't don't let him near any waste truck dumps. He'll find more ARD. And that was you, Andy Robertson. (laughs) So before I knew it, I had a connection with you without even knowing it. So you're the you're the precursor of me actually uh, getting into the ARD world.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, it's uh, there's a lot of ARD around there, so we'll be together for a long time. That's right. And that
0: uh, and you guys actually you guys uh, won an award in consulting engineering in colorado for that project with woodward clyde is that correct, correct.
1: for the putting in at the cutoff wall, which was the first time that uh, something with the size of boulders yes that's volkswagen size boulders and that dump and highly permeable materials that somebody has constructed a cutoff which was down in the uh, uh 30 40 uh feet sort of depth. yeah you know, yeah you know, the um Sorry, 30, 40 meters depth, um, which um, was unprecedented at that time. Not so much for depth, because deeper ones had been made, but for the tough conditions under which that equipment had to work in order to do it. And the innovative solutions that had to be brought to bear to actually get that into place.
0: And it was the wall was really extensive. Was It was like it, it was more than a kilometer, wasn't it?
1: It was close to a kilometre. Okay. Yeah. 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 It had little edges, if you told on, if I recall rightly. You take the edge bits, which were necessarily done by, by the full cut method. It's about one point four kilometres. But right. Uh,
0: right. Yeah. So it was, uh, that was a, a start for me, and then I remember. Uh, uh, as with robertson Consultant, you got boucaine consultants involved at the quest of mine yeah. and here i was uh, uh couldn't believe how fortunate i was i had I had uh a full day with you walking around and up and down mine rock stockpiles over there, figuring out uh, landform stability and and a r d and things like that so that was uh that was quite a day for me. It was your regular day, but it was quite a day for me to be with you um, but
1: nice to hear that, but uh, I think Cuesta is one of those examples that uh, when, when i when I got involved, the manager uh, was the same manager who had created all the problems. Yes, and uh, it's not that he created problems. he did what was done, yes. in those days, right And by those standards he had done perfectly normal things. But the realisation that that has caused a problem which you couldn't necessarily see as being a big problem immediately, but clearly it was going to become a much bigger problem later. And you could see just struggle. He could not accept that he was the, I hate to call it a perpetration, he was a perpetrator of what is. A big environmental hazard right. that there was there, and I think it's that accept that lack of acceptance because you did everything right, and then finding a lot of it created a big problem and it's wrong, is what held back a lot of the enthusiasm to go forward and find solutions. It is challenging to go back and realize that you
0: like maybe you hadn't. You hadn't done it right. And maybe that's also one of the things or hopefully we're getting over is people actually using these learnings and saying, well, I did the best I could then. But if I knew now what I knew then, would I do it differently? And sort of overcoming that that fear of letting people know that you've not quite got it, had it figured out and now where to go.
1: And, you know, a lot of that development of early thinking around closure, um, preparing the mind for closure during the whole of the mind life started right here in Vancouver. And if you can people remo- recall John Gadsby. I, exactly, I know John Gadsby, yeah. You know, he was the first sort of um, um, uh, main promoter of the term "design for closure." Yes, and those those words became fairly common in by the time we were hitting the late nineteen eighties, early nineteen nineties. So that is really the time it went from the specific to the general understanding. And there was fast adoption in some places, like in the metal mines here. Yeah. Low adoption in other places, like the oil sands mines. Yes. In in Alberta, there was always that feeling in Alberta that we're too big to fail type thing. Right. right. It, there's no way that we are creating this great big hazard, and it was just as industry denial of what they. Had to do, and having said that i don 't think the environmental issues from the oil sands mining is that particularly uh, huge, but it 's sufficient that it has to be done right, not the way it was done
0: right. yeah it might be the, it might be the the scale of the problem as opposed to the magnitude of the problem if that makes sense
1: yeah yeah it's it 's uh, I suppose scale and magnitude have a lot of similarities. They
0: do have a lot of similarities. Uh, <laughs> I might have to <laughs> the wrong words there.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, what you, I think what you were saying is that uh, a lot of low-level effect, uh, uh, there's still a lot of effect if there's a lot of it. It's not a little localized thing. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> but also, visually, it is so uh, distressing. You see what you see when you look at air photos and so on. Yeah. If you are somebody who does not understand the process by which that can be reclaimed. If simply you judge mining by the disturbance during mining and not the residual effects after mining, um, after mining closure. And I think that's a big change. We did not do anything after closure. We shut the doors. Invited the contractors in to come and bid on what was left on it, and if they could take it away and give us some money, they could do that, and then went home, right? That was the 1960s. Today, we sit in a very different world, a very different world of planning, a very different world of obligation to turn that back into something that is useful and doesn't leave these great big residual concerns, ISOs. Yeah, the-
0: well, that was, uh, I remember actually my dad, when I was thinking about getting into mm-hmm. this, this field and, and, and talking about closure, and my dad said, he goes, you need to go talk to John Gadsby. So I had a, yeah. had a meeting with him and he, I asked him about it. And he goes, well, I, I might know something about that. And he put a, pushed across the table his book yeah. that he actually wrote on it uh, right in there, Designing for Closure. Yeah. So that was, uh, that, was, uh, that was a great resource for me and uh, And then speaking of the scale, I was wondering, like we, there's a there's a spatial scale, which you spoke, spoke about, and I think inherently you also talked about a temporal scale within there. I was wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing your thoughts on how do we deal with this temporal scale, from the perspective of, of risk and understanding risk and design lives and and uh, thinking about well, I need to design for this time frame, but could I really design something for a thousand years, or do we need to pull that back? But look at risk from a from a longer time frame.
1: Um, so many of the effects take a very long time to reestablish. I mean, if you just think about vegetation, I mean, there's a whole there's a very significant number of decades. Before you go from an initial seeding or planting to what is a climax, um, natural forest or grassland or whatever the system is going to be. The changes that you have made, you do not have the same lithological and agronomical uh, soil formations that you are putting back on over the areas you've disturbed. Compared to what there was originally, yeah. you are changing aspect, you are changing all of those things. So, the only way you can understand what is going to happen in the future is to model it using models that are fed with data that are sufficiently specific and adequate to be able to give you reliable answers. Now, problems are that those models still are not fed for adequate data, right? Yeah. Some parts of it are better than others, but we're really taking guesses at so many of the things that we're putting in and how they interact. The big advantage of mine has is that it typically has a long life. So if you design for closure and you look at what you plan to close, what you, the technology you're planning to close with, and you start testing it very early, you have that opportunity to gain the site-specific data and knowledge in order to better improve your model. So when it comes to risk associated with either the end effects or how the geochemistry will develop or how the stability will deteriorate due to weathering and other things, how erosional process will proceed and so on, our models get us to a... To an estimate, right? But that estimate is a very poor estimate, generally, of what actually happens afterwards. Particularly as the as the time gets longer and longer and longer. So, the trialing and the the testing of that technology in the site specific type conditions is an important part, in my view, of ending up with a reliable closure plan that you have that you will. Reduce the interaction you have to do after you close it. When we look at engineering things like ditches, it's silt up, sides fall in, clogged with vegetation. They really don't last many decades. Yes. Right? When you look at other items like concrete and so on, they may be functional for a couple of hundred years. But really beyond that, it's pretty easy. Right? So we have an engineering capability that is somewhere between a few decades and perhaps 100 or 200 years that we can, with reasonable reliability, make some sort of prediction of what the deterioration rates are likely to be, how they will behave, what the range of um, plume development, and this type of thing might happen. So I believe you should try very hard. To be able to at least make certain you can inform your models with the information that takes you through that hundred years, yeah. whether, and the model obviously has a dispersion as you go forward as as to its predictions. In the range of a hundred years and a thousand years, you get more and more into doing prediction at a level at which you can only really look at catastrophic destruction. I mean, you you can't look at detail, is this patch of climate vegetation going to really be this that I'm intending it to be? So you have to allow for a flexibility or an alternative development that there is. And as we're finding with more and more minds, it's very hard to actually say that's done you must expect to have to go back and do some maintenance, right? Yeah. And you know, ditches are critical. You're going to have to clean them out. If um, forest fires are a big problem, and I don't think forest fires are necessarily <laughs> a big problem, you're going to have to control the fires right. that are happening. So the the need to... to um, Uh, allow for continued interaction with the site is very much dependent on those predictions that go forward. Because after 100 years, a lot of your structures that you have there either would be failed or approaching failure unless you've done your work ahead of time to at least get you that far. Right. So I think I might have this right where you're
0: advocating, which I Really agree with is here. First, start with a very strong conceptual model of what what's happening at the site, and then, of course, jump ahead with numerical modeling. But always come back throughout to actually site specific data gathering, gathering data, learning more, testing. Which in essence is that's the observational method that Tersagi developed for the big construction, all the big dams and tech. Um, uh, I think probably documented first, but that's what we're talking about is the observational method. Have I got that right or, or am I misinterpreting that?
1: Absolutely. Uh, you've got it right. Um, the, the process of getting to a prediction, it starts with forming that conceptual model. When it becomes, when you start at the base of it and the geotechnics of it, well, it really starts with your geology. Yeah. So you, your geology, your geochemistry, your uh, geotechnics, your groundwater, your um, seismology, all of those, your hydrology, all of those are um, aspects that you have to p- produce a conceptual model of, right, in your mind. You must understand it. Yeah. You must be able to draw it or explain it. Without numerical models, once you understand those and the engineer the potential uh, response that those have to whatever stimuli there is in the future, floods or earthquakes or so on, have to be carefully considered, right? But I mean, it includes things like nutrient uh, 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 stripping and all the other things that are going to happen when you start things off, the fertilization right. and, and so on. So that model has to be clear, the what is model out there must be very clear. The how will it behave model mechanistically, you must have a pretty clear concept because a numerical model is only going to give you um, some insight between the the things you – really ask it to tell you yes yeah, right yeah it doesn't go out and find all the failure modes it doesn't go out and um, correct incorrect data that you fed into it
0: yeah right? i like that that's very true right yeah
1: so you have to start off with that conceptual model that you that you have and it's a two part it's the data set and the characterization and then there's the mechanistic Part that the model has to simulate based on that data, and you have to allow for time and the change of those parameters that are going to happen with time.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Uh, I uh, I really like that. So you were right at the forefront of, uh, you know, say for example, especially in British Columbia, of bringing this awareness and this need for understanding the source with respect to, to metal leaching and acid rock drainage. How has it changed or, or has it changed from when at forefront to where we are today? And, and what do you see for us managing metal leaching and acid rock drainage in the future? Is it, is it all, uh, let's put a cover system on it and you collect and treat, or are there opportunities to, to manage that problem better, do you think, with all the knowledge we've gained? Well,
1: number one, there's been a lot of knowledge gained. But the knowledge tends to tell you a lot more about the mineralogy, which minerals work, and so on, about the time dependency, about interferences, about absorption, about retardation factors, these sorts of things. Um, The interaction that actually happens is very heterogeneous Mm -hmm. in dumps and in tailings dams, or less so in tailings dams, but in dumps and pits and so on. And the sequence, the long-term sequence of change in depreciation that involves weathering, that has to come out of data gathered and put in content over time. That's building up, right? I think there's big advances that can still be made in the correlation of all of of that in order to get the... um, trends and the uh, mechanistic changes that happen well explained and understood right yeah. but there are a lot of them the circumstances are so very different from the variability of the particle size of the minerals that are within those particles the leaching effects that are covering over it that actually modeling that without having some field trials without having something to ground truth it with to calibrate your model. means your model can be very out and so on. So that's the importance of getting your mechanisms right. Um, Bearing always in mind that mining is a somewhat uncertain process that you respond to changes in process technology, changes in the economic value of what you have. You start off with what is a a zinc mine and you end up with a lead mine yeah and, uh, yeah or a copper mine you end up with a zinc mine and there's all sorts of things the economics change the stuff you take out changes how you grind it changes how you place it changes during the life of which may be a 30 or 40 year yeah. lifespan so um, i think bottling is very important once you have done the characterization to the best way and the mechanistic conceptual modelling in your mind and on paper and sketching something which you see less and less, by the way. Yeah. Once you've done all of that, the uh, the numerical models are very very useful for examining sensitivity. Yes. Within that framework, but really the you are just using the model. You are setting in boundary conditions and so on, which gives it. A certain more, more, it gives it more freedom within the body of the model, right? To um, uh, give a display of how things change within the reaction parameters that you put in. But they're also dependent on what you put in.
0: So the communication tool with your colleagues around the table, it still should, that numerical model needs to inform the conceptual model. It remains the conceptual model that you're, that you're communicating. Right. Uh, and, and to, uh, to sort of outside because you're using that numerical model to compare different alternatives and do sensitivity analysis, or right. et cetera.
1: The numerical model should basically improve your understanding of your conceptual model. Yes. Right? Yeah. it allows you to uh, get a better idea of ranges and and getting uh, outcomes depending on probability and so on. Um, of particular parameters that you think it might be sensitive to right. but you have to decide it's sensitive to that particular thing ahead of time, yeah. you must have that knowledge. Yeah. Where do you get that knowledge from case histories right from observation at other sites from yeah. documentation
0: well, one of the uh, well, there's two tools that I just wanted to briefly touch on because that I think you brought into the mining industry that are very powerful tools. Um, one is the the multiple accounts analysis tool and the other one is the failure modes and effects analysis tool. Uh, they're tools that I I I really embrace. I really believe in them. And uh, but so let's look at the, the FMEA. I view it and I think the powerfulness of it is that it's a tool that you can always come back and look through that conceptual model lens and say, hey, I had a potential failure mode. I ranked it this. We did some work. And now what I think probability or consequence effect allows us to communicate. But I think what you're also saying is the power of that FMEA, perhaps. And I don't want to put words in your mouth is that you're saying I probably understand the mechanisms quite well, maybe. But it's the site specific controls that I need to keep on coming back to and the FMEA as a tool to do that or think through that. Is that-
1: Absolutely. yeah it's the it, – just me correct one thing. I, I, I was not the first proposer of of uh, FMEAs. When I arrived here in Canada okay. in 1977, it was already in use. Sparsely, but it was already okay. in use. okay Not in the form that we – Myself and others have subsequently developed it too, right? So it was already there, but the the honing of it to the classification systems for probability and for consequence, and the tying that in to um, literature that we that has developed since on on loss of life and this type of thing, uh, that was taken a lot further, right? And I think. I spent a lot of time carrying the tool with me because just like yourself, I find it's an absolutely essential tool. I believe the engineer coming out or the uh, uh, whatever the uh, the basic uh, training of the person coming out of university and getting involved doesn't um, it, 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 it sets problems to which they get answers at university right. What you have to now do is you have to, in, in real life, is you're going to say, what are the chances that my answer is right? Right? It's to solve the equation, right? Yeah. But does my equation and do the things that influence the reactions and so on, do they in fact affect the answer? Right. right? And that's really your what ifs, right? Yeah. And it's that breaking that down into a simple process with relatively simple classification, but yet have meaning for long life structures. And I'm rather sad to see that the adoption and the transfer that has happened in the last 15 or so years, where they've tried to marry the probability and consequent classes to the Ah, uh, for FMEAs yes. designed for dams and major geotechnical structures and long-life uh, complex structures, they're trying to tie it to Hazop-type risk assessments, right? Because they say management only needs to it needs one risk table, yeah. That's
0: a challenge. I agree with you. I I, I think that there's two se- separate things going on there. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. So I actually think we've seen a step backwards in FMEA application because of that change that's brought about, and that I a lot of the FMEAs I see today, when you go into it, I say, but those numbers just don't make sense. Yeah. So I uh, there's a plea, yeah, to stay. With the older system, yeah, right, continue to advance. Don't, don't, any improvement is an improvement, but the improvement of marrying it with a HAZOP and trying to take hazards of dropping something on your toe to a dam failure and taking out a a village is not covered in the types of systems that they've, they've since developed. Yeah, I agree. The MAA, um, was something that when we were trying to work on decision-making. And this was actually for the closure of the Zortman and Dusky mines in uh, Montana. Yes. There to communicate the alternatives and the pros and cons of the alternatives to the stakeholders. The, the mine lands were surrounded by tribal uh, Indian tribal uh, yes. lands, and there was huge mistrust between the, um, the tribal members and the, uh, the governing bodies right. and the mining company on what their motives were what they were going to do, what they were going to leave, that type of thing during closure. And um, fortunately, the mining company decided to do the right thing. All right. They said, we, we'll put a lot into the closure costs. It just needs to make sense. You need to know which way to go. Right. How do we do decision-making? So I spent a little time and, on looking at decision-making and found a symposium in Hawaii on environmental type, uh, uh, big environmental type, impact, complex, uh, multivariate problems, that they had come together with what I now call the MAA, multiple account yes. analysis. And I think it just runs too simply because that's what you do. Yes. Exactly. And
0: there's uh, you actually uh, there's a fantastic paper that you published. And I apologize. I can't remember the year. But on the Zortland landowski project, I distinctly recall reading it, that there was a lot of the structure, the setup in the the accounts, the sub-accounts. But a huge part of your summary in that paper was it provided that framework for a a trusting collaboration amongst people and for people to understand each other's perspectives. Uh, And I remember that being a, a a big part of what you came to or what you wanted to message in that paper. And I think that that, that still remains true.
1: Absolutely. The 90% of the value of an MAA is the communication. It stimulates. Right. And the understanding it generates. Because you're able to look at each alternative way that you could do it, and anybody can throw in an idea of an alternative. Right. Because you have the main accounts or the main issues that that solution will solve, or the main issues that that um, uh, solution will, cre- uh, will uh, create that are deleterious. You can, you can go through, you can say, well, if we did this, here are all the goods, here are all the bads. If we did that, here are all the goods and here are all the bads. Right. And when you're finished, you can look at those and you can say, well, if I try and sum these in some sort of Gut feel ranking and scaling yeah. and weighting, I end up with a choice. Yes. Right? Yeah. So, in that process of establishing those numbers, that's a wonderful tool for each specialist to communicate with, say, a stakeholder like a community yeah. on the subject that he is the expert in and therefore is the right person to influence that number. Within the narrow band of that number, but then you have to add his bit with the next person's bit, with the next specialist's bit, with the next specialist's bit, plus the bits in which the community is a specialist. Yes. And they can all see how they come, and if they feel that that is not right, they can put in another number, and they can see if it makes a difference. Yeah. So it became a wonderful tool for communication and acceptance of things like closure plans and things which are so broad, they're difficult to explain to somebody who's only going to give you a couple of hours. Nice. Well, the the
0: Landform Design Institute has 12 principles. And uh, we've actually, without speaking about what we've already spoken about, because you referenced back to uh, John Gadsby and and designing for closure and and, uh, the LDIs first principle is is mine with the end in mind um so it's very i mean it, it's 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 a, it's another way of saying exactly the same thing not new but but it's the same side of thing so looking to uh to finish up here with you is i just got a couple more questions is that if we think about there's a uh, um, there's new people young people coming into the profession um is there would there be things that you could offer to them to say, like, you know, make make sure to do this, make sure to tr- tr- try that? What are those as they think about going through their career um, and getting through there? What's what? What are do you have any advice for for anybody?
1: No, I actually put down a couple of notes uh, on <laughs> anticipating just such a question. <laughs> it's a very broad question. Yes. Because they each come from a different background. <laughs> They each have a different goal. So to give advice that addresses their capability and their interest and their goal through the pathway that's available to them in implementing wine closure, and hopefully their idea is to improve wine closure, is very difficult to say to them. Yeah, you should be doing this or that. But there are a few general principles that I think that are, are very important for every new graduate that gets involved. And some of those you're going to see are not ones that are just applicable to mind closure, right? They're applicable to life. And I think those those parts are are important. So just uh, it's very difficult. It's a very difficult question to respond to as the ultimate goal of each young person starting in the industry is so different. The do's and don'ts differ with different goals. Now here are some general comments. Execute what you do with passion. You've heard that many times. Yes. You're so passionate. Um, the uh, others that are leading the institute are so passionate. That's why it is a success and will be an even greater success. Without passion, you should move on, right? Because without passion, you don't have effort. Correct. And if you don't put in effort, you don't get success. If you don't get success, you become very discouraged and a very unhappy person. So whatever you tackle, tackle with passion or move on. University teaches you to learn and provides you with a few tools to be useful in the mining industry. Remember, it's only the start of your education, most of which comes from your curiosity regarding what you're doing. Right? Be curious. Be curious. Pass. You know? Don't just say, hey, you're the, you're the boss, you said it be done this way, I'll do it that way. Right? Or don't just accept somebody uh, saying, "Well, that's the way you do it." Yeah, dig in. If they can't explain it, find out for yourself. Right. You have lots of curious colleagues and people around you. But unless you you share and ask, you don't advance. You don't fill that storage of knowledge that you so that's so precious when you develop and get into the uh, into the, the the higher levels of uh, of uh, implementation and right. management and so on. Uh, explore the literature, ask and discuss with your mentors or colleagues. The knowledge you gain is another piece of a jigsaw, very often of which you only have that piece. Right. It fits with nothing when you first start. But it comes out sometime later, when in front of you there's, and all of a sudden your little bit of jigsaw that came out from something you did in a prior job just fits and finishes the picture right. for that particular one. So store it, right? Get involved in as much as you can. Learn as much as you can from your colleagues. I think it's also terribly important that you ground your knowledge in your early years. So because there's a diversity of, of training, I'm going to talk more around Ge- mining geotechnics. Yes. If you are a mining geotechnical engineer, you come out of university with too little knowledge in geology, geochemistry, order, geophysics, and the principles of mine land reclamation. You simply cannot fit all of those to an adequate level into either a BSc or an MSc or a PhD. That is something that you only get by going out and reading and discussing and absorbing from your colleagues and those that are around you. You do not need them all. you can get on without doing geophysics or without doing geochemistry or seismology, but the broader your understanding and knowledge base, the greater will be your opportunities. So it's just terribly important to get out there and absorb all of the peripheral things that influence you. Yeah. I don't believe you can design a tailings dam today without understanding geochemistry, tailings uh, uh, transport, as well as all of the other hydrology, uh, geotechnics, and uh, geology that was traditionally associated with it. Um, fundamental to understanding mining geotechnics is site characterization, mapping, core logging, material testing. Before doing any engineering, it is a fundamental requirement that you understand how characterization is done and the confidence you can place in the data. So many of our students today get that step and become hotshot modelers. We need the hotshot modelers, but the hotshot modelers who've got that as a grounding are one hell of a lot better than the hotshot modelers say, so well, you give me the parameters and I'll make this baby spit out any answer you like. Right. You know? Yeah. It's uh, it's terribly important not to narrow too early unless that is your ultimate goal to just drive a model and not really solve the problem that the model was first to developed to, to help you.
0: That's such a nuance. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: Before accepting the results of any modeling, ensure you understand the principles of modeling, boundary conditions, model construction, and constraints. Don't just accept this is an accepted model de- developed by the EPA or something like that. Right? If you don't understand them, you don't understand if you've asked, if you put the right data in and you've asked the right questions. And that results in poor use of a very good model
0: yeah so yeah. Be, basically be be critical and just ask that question don't be afraid to ask the question like so what boundary condition did you use there
1: uh, but understand what boundary conditions mean modeling is not a black box i mean it's a simple set of principles that we can all understand at the conceptual level right fit it into your conceptual thinking a poorly used models i think are very misleading yeah and i think we are seeing some very poor decisions being made because the model of being accepted as the, as the predictor yes. of what is going to happen without having generated the right inputs and, you know, and checked the outputs. And then judgment and the tools that help to shape judgment. It's FMEAs yeah. and MAAs are a very important. During all phases of a project, learn to use them early. And FMEA is not only that you are questioning your project, but you are questioning yourself. Yeah. And if you involve others with you in doing that assessment, your mentors, your team members, whatever it is, they are also checking you yeah. in doing that. And there's no better way of learning than having others say, hey, you missed this or you missed that. Thank you. Thank you for asking me. What about that? The wonderful tool for spreading understanding, similarly for MAAs, mining will continue. Reclamation requirements will increase, ensuring long-term career opportunity. The opportunity is there. I just wish I could travel down the road that they will follow.
0: That's amazing. I I wish that too, Uh, Andy. I have looked forward to this for a number of months. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, Anything that I missed asking, Andy? Um, Honestly, I just, uh, again, I I just so appreciate this. I think so highly of you and so many other people do. Andy, thank you.
1: You're welcome. Well, I think we've- Covered it. uh, It's about as much as I think anybody could stand (laughs) if they were listening at the other end. Thank you. Thank you for asking.
0: Wow, that was incredible. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Getting Closure is a production of LDI with help from Westhawk Associates. For more information on the Institute, visit landformdesign.com, where you can sign up for free updates on Institute activities or, better yet, become a member. In the next episode, I'll be talking with LDI board member Lois Boxhill whose story is every bit as fascinating as Andy's. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. Thanks so much for listening.